0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 10 on Alice's Adventures. And tonight we should not only get into Looking Glass House, but also get to the Jabberwocky poem, which I know a lot of people are looking forward to talking about. I'm not 100% sure how much more, how much further we're going to get past the Jabberwocky poem tonight but we'll see we'll see how that goes um anyway uh before i start i just a couple quick announcements um I just was in Denver this past weekend for Mountain Moot, which was a delightful gathering of folks. Uh, Great to meet a whole bunch of people for the first time. I'd never been out to Denver before, so that was really great. Uh, And I'm looking forward to more such moots and more such opportunities here in the next few weeks. So, not this weekend, but next weekend is Middle Moot in Kansas City. So, if you're anywhere in the Kansas City area and would like to come join us, you can still do that at Middle Moot on October 8th. And then on October October fifteenth, we're having New England Moot up here in New Hampshire near me. So, this is the one that's—it's not literally in my backyard, but it's figuratively in my backyard. Um, in fact, we're going to be holding it uh, at the studio where we shoot Rings and Realms. Um, so, the whole moot will be taking place within the studio, uh, with the whole with the big digital wall and stuff in the background. It's going to be fun, um, and um, uh, um, and uh, anyway, so and and then we're gonna. Um, Actually, we have an extra event also the day before, um, uh, which is going to be... Folks can come to uh, do a big watch party for the finale of the Rings of Power show with us. And then also be, you can take part uh, as a live audience for the filming of the last episode of Rings and Realms as well. So uh, you guys can collaborate with me on that last episode and be a part of that. Uh, and so that would be the day before New England Moot um, on the, so the 13th to the 14th uh, of um, of October as well. So uh, check out uh, the event page at Signum University. Go to signumuniversity.org and go to uh, regional moots under our other stuff uh, and you can find all the registration information and all that kind of thing. Um, so there we are. Um, and yes, um Yes, Arthur, I know that I, I'm going to talk about the Jabberwock thing. Um, I mentioned, I said the Jabberwocky poem, that is the poem called Jabberwocky, which I shall defend that wording because um, we're going to talk about that. Um, okay. Anyway, so uh, let us jump into the text here. Um All right. Uh, So we're just about to transition to uh, we were talking last about Alice's imagination, which I want to remind you of Um, her. Let's pretend. Right. And the way in which she is, um, remember, frustrated with her sister's. Imaginative limitations, right how uh she wants to imagine with her sister that they are kings and queens, and uh, her sister does not think that that's her sister thinks that that's nonsense right because they're each only one person um she's willing to go as far as imagining herself to be someone else, but she's not willing to go so far as to imagine that she is multiple people because that's nonsense right um and Alice. In great frustration, says, "You can be one of them, and I will be all the rest." Right? Alice's imaginations have has no her imagination has no such limitations. Now, um, we also remember she also was wanted to pretend uh, that she was a hungry hyena, and her nurse was a bone as well. Right? Um, so. Her imagination is going to... We we need to be remembering that as we move towards Looking Glass House here. Um, Okay. Um, Now, she's still talking to the cat, however, the kitten uh, that she was scolding at the beginning, right? Now if you only attend, Kitty, and not talk so much, I'll tell you all my ideas about Looking Glass House. First there's the room you can see through the glass. That's just the same as our drawing room, only the things go the other way. I can see all of it when I get up on a chair, all but the bit just behind the fireplace. Oh, I do so wish I could see that bit. I want so much to know whether they've a fire in the winter. You never can tell, you know, unless our fire smokes, and then the smoke comes up in that room too. But that may only be a pretense, just to make it look as if they had a fire. Well then, the books are something like our books, only the words go the wrong way. I know that because I've held up one of our books to the glass, and then they hold up one in the other room. How would you like to live in Looking Glass House, Kitty? I wonder if they'd give you milk in there. Perhaps Looking Glass milk isn't good to drink. But oh, Kitty, now we come to the passage. You can just see a little peep of the passage in Looking Glass House if you leave the door of our drawing-room wide open. And it's very like our passage as far as you can see, only, you know, it may be quite different on beyond. Oh, Kitty, how nice it would be if we could only get through into Looking Glass House. I'm sure it's got, oh, such beautiful things in it. Let's pretend there's a way of getting through into it somehow, Kitty. Let's pretend the glass has got all soft like gauze so that we can get through. Why? It's turning into a sort of mist now, I declare. It'll be easy to get through. Alright. So, um, notice the way that this all picks up on her pretendings, right? That we were just talking about, that I was just reminding us of, that we saw last time. Um, uh, Sorry. All of my glasses are very smudgy. Um, So, now, if only you'll attend Kitty and not talk so much is how this particular passage begins. And, of course, the kitty has not, I believe, in truth, been speaking a very great deal, right? But you'll recall the two-way conversation that Alice was enthusiastically having with the kitty, right? Um, in which she was imagining the kitten's responses. Um, so starting off by uh, um, chiding the kitten for talking so much. You know, if you only you'll attend, I'll tell you my ideas about Looking Glass House, right? So she's going to tell us and the kitty all about this. Um, if only the kitty won't talk so much. That is, what is the conflict here, right? If only my... <laughs> my, my pretense, right? My imagination about our conversation will allow, I will then tell you what I'm imagining about looking glass house. And she tells us all about it. And this is based on observation, notice that there's something very conspicuous, there's something conspicuously missing. What does she not report seeing in looking glass house? This is, I think, very significant. In this whole description, she gives uh, a very sort of accurate, you know, true to life, detailed observation about what she can see in Looking Glass House. And if you don't make assumptions, right, um, or rather, there would be two steps, wouldn't there? First, if you accept the premise that the looking glass is not a reflection is not a reflector right Ref- reflecting the regular world but rather a window a portal right that you can look through into somewhere else if it's if it's if it's not a mirror but a window that's the first thing you have to do and then the second thing you have to do is not make any assumptions right um i mean notice as she talked when she talks about the passage right? You can see just a little peep of the passage in Looking Glass House. That is the hallway, right? But if you, leave the door of our, if, we, if you leave the door of our drawing room wide open, and it's very like our passage as far as you can see, only, you know, it may be quite different on beyond. Everything that you can see in Looking Glass House is almost identical to what you can see in the regular room, right? Which might lead some to conclude, even some people who had taken the imaginative step to say this is a window, that you're seeing through, right? Um, some people would, uh, uh, would take the step, um, sorry, if they took the step, they might not free themselves from the assumption that since almost everything you can see, since everything you can see is almost exactly the same as in this room, the rest of it must be too, right? But Alice does not make that assumption. Alice believes, or at least suspects, or at least wonders, right? whether or not whether or not the things that she sees are in fact quite the same and she imagines they're probably not right the passage you know just because you can see a little bit of the hall and it looks just like our hallway um doesn't necessarily mean that it goes on and continues looking and acting just like our hallway um i'm sure it's got oh such beautiful things in it she says right um so Yeah. So, okay. Um, that's one really interesting thing. And notice there's a sense in which her lack of her unwillingness to make the assumption that the looking glass room and therefore the looking glass house must be identical to the real house. Um, her assumption is so aggressive that she actually is skeptical about indirect evidence Right, like you can't tell for sure whether there's a fire. The mirror is above the fireplace, right? So the one thing you can't ever see in the in the mirror is, you know, in the Looking Glass, is the fireplace. It's like you can see the mantle, right, but you can't see the actual fireplace. Um, she does point out that when their fireplace smokes, you can see smoke in Looking Glass House, right which is suggestive right that's indirect evidence that they have a fire in looking glass house but she's not sure i want so much to know whether they've a fire in winter you never can tell you know um, because even if it smokes that m- might maybe only pretense just to make it look as if they had a fire so the people of looking glass house might be faking a fire right just to deceive them uh, just to deceive you in some re- you know for some reason right um, okay so, hang on, I lost my place. What was I going to, was, was I just talking about next? Uh, I was talking about the assumption that, or the, the assumption you have to resist, right? Um, and her imagination, she, the way in which she, oh, that's right. I was going to go back to the question that I asked in which you guys exactly correctly answered. Um, she does not see herself in looking glass room, right? There's no little girl. Notice how she avoids that, even when it's clearly unavoidable. It's one thing to say, because, I mean, that would be the one thing that would always be present in the other room, right? If she is in this room gazing into Looking Glass House, there is a 100% chance that there will be a little girl who looks rather like her, right, in Looking Glass House, looking back out at her. Um, And, in fact, I think about... um, (laughs) I was about to say... You know what this makes me think about. Maybe you don't know what this makes me think about. But if you knew my wife better, you would indeed know what this makes me think of. And this makes me think of Anne of Green Gables. Um, And uh, the way that um, Orphan Anne in the beginning of Anne of Green Gables speaks of the conversations that she has had with various reflections and echoes of herself because she was so lonely and had no other company. Right. And so she frequently made a friend of her own reflection or Echo, um, and invented entire stories about that person. Alice is doing the absolute inverse of what Anne Shirley and Anne of Green Gables does, right? Um, Anne of Green Gables does not fantasize about the world, right? Does not make any, do any imagining about that place. It's all about the other girl, right? It's all about the other person. Um, but, um, uh, but, Alice is quite the opposite of that. She utterly ignores herself. Indeed, like you notice how she actually not only does she not see herself in the mirror, um, but she um, she strikes herself out like she imaginatively and actively removes herself. Right. No, do you see that at the end? She says, well, then the books are something like our books, only the words go the wrong way. I know that. She's proven this empirically, right? I know that because I've held up one of our books to the glass, and then they hold up one in the other room. And you can see that the letter, the writing in it is just not the same, right? That's when I, when I said there was, um, it was almost exactly like our, our world, like, like the normal room. That's one of the obvious exceptions, right? The books are just not the same. In Looking Glass House, right? Um, they're all nonsense. But Alice is not there. Then they, vaguely, the unnamed, unidentified denizens of Looking Glass House also hold up a book when she holds up a book, which is very cooperative of them, right? But she is completely, um, she's completely non- not interested in that at all. Right. And that I think is very, very interesting. Um, Indeed, I hadn't even really thought of this, but I have a sort of notion that Anne's omission, Anne, listen to me, think of Anne of Green Gables now, that Alice's omission of herself from Looking Glass House is something that we're going to see is going to be a bit of a motif. Yeah, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. I don't think we'll get to it this week. Maybe. Maybe we'll see some things about that. I'll, let me just say, keep in mind that in the initial conception, this is where we're getting Alice's introduction, right, to her imagination about Looking Glass World, um, Looking Glass Land. And um, just remember that in that initial conception Alice herself <laughs> now I've made the an connection and they both start with a, I'm going to be messing myself up by uh, who knows for how long now. Um, but anyway, that in this initial conception, Alice herself is not present. And I think that that's, um, uh, that's really interesting. So exactly. The first fish is uh, us saying, you know, Esila, is, uh, right? That is writing Alice backwards. Uh, like it might appear in the, in the mirror. Um, you would think there would be lots of ways, lots of fertile material, right? I mean, again, like, so, um, to make the dangerous comparison one last time, um, Anne of Green Gables does not associate any like difference. She imagines it's another person, right? Because she's wanting another person to be friends with. Um, And so she personifies her reflection, and she turns it into a friend that she can interact with within her imagination, right? Alice's imagination doesn't work that way. Um, And I could easily imagine, first fish, um, her to, she would do something like that, right? She might give the looking glass person a different name. She would, I, I can certainly understand in the context of this, I wouldn't have expected her just to be like, well, that's me, that's my reflection, right? Uh, but I could imagine her saying there's a girl in Looking Glass House who looks kind of like me and acts kind of like me or whatever, but is backwards and might have, you know, her name might be spelled backwards or whatever, that she would invent um, or rather that she would invest some kind of identity in that person. Um which was not just like oh look another person to be my friend but rather um that she would have some kind of an imaginative play on the whole looking glass situation i could easily imagine alice doing that but she doesn't instead um it is she's only interested in the house um she's only interested in the world she's interested this as a in in the looking glass um Exactly not as an opportunity to socialize, right? But as an opportunity to explore, to discover, to see, oh, such beautiful things that must be in it. Let's pretend there's a way of getting through into it somehow. Looking Glass Land is a frontier that she wants to explore. She wants to see. She believes that the things outside the Looking Glass, um, what you can see in Looking Glass House, everything outside. That's why, notice how she gives evidence of having craned around, right? Like, if you you, you can get just a peep of the passage, right? If you look, you know, she's clearly peered from every angle that she can. Um, And everything that she has seen has been distressingly identical to the regular room. But that doesn't prove that it isn't far more interesting beyond that, right? Um, We also should note, at least in passing, that her passage into Looking Glass Land is founded, right? Is established on her phrase, let's pretend, right? Um, What exactly happened? The sort of dream sequence of Alice in Wonderland, her sort of falling asleep and then the rabbit comes by um, and then the rabbit hole as a sort of transition. um, She surprises herself She's just surprised by the rabbit. And then she's surprised that she goes down the rabbit hole that she fits. Um, and then it is. She's falling. Right. Um, that is, she's the travel is completely on um, uh, intentional. Right. On. Uh, um, what's the word? Uh, this is a very simple word that I'm not able to remember right now, but whatever. Um, anyway, it's it's not in her own volition. Right. She's plummeting. She's gravity is taking her. Right. Um, Wonderland, the trip to Wonderland, uh, she does go into the rabbit hole. So it's not like her will was not involved in any way. Um, but again, we she doesn't begin while still in the normal waking world by saying, wouldn't it be nice if I could go down a rabbit hole? I wonder what that would be like. I wonder what wonderful worlds I would discover if I went down a rabbit hole. right? None of that She just sort of falls asleep and then all of a sudden she's going down involuntary. my I think that was kind of the word I was looking for. Yes, her travel was completely involuntary before that's this simple word that I couldn't remember. Good grief um but um anyway, thank you, mohead. I appreciate that um so all right um I Yes. This is voluntary in every way, right? Both she is deliberately crawling through the looking glass, right? She is deliberately um, sort of making, setting the imagination of the idea of the permeability of the looking glass, right? Um, And she is sort of establishing the whole thing. What she Believes she might see if she goes through the looking glass. This is all a, a, an active contrivance of her imagination from the very beginning, right? Um, at least that's how it is presented to us. Now, um, spoiler, we're going to get some dream mechanism at the end again, right? But it's not really a spoiler because there will be a lot more to talk about when we get there. Um, but we should definitely notice. That um, her let's pretend is the foundation of her time in Looking Glass House. Okay. In another moment, Alice was through the glass and had jumped lightly down into the Looking Glass room. The very first thing she did was to look whether there was a fire in the fireplace. And she was quite pleased to find that there was a real one, blazing away as brightly as the one she had left behind so i shall be as warm here as i was in the old room thought alice warmer in fact because there'll be no one here to scold me away from the fire oh what fun it'll be when they see me through the glass in here and can't get at me Then she began looking about and noticed that what could be seen from the old room was quite common and uninteresting, but all the rest was as different as possible. For instance, the pictures on the wall next to the fire seemed to be all alive, and the very clock on the chimney piece, you know you can only see the back of it in the looking glass, had got the face of a little old man and grinned at her. All right, so let's start with the second paragraph and then go back to the first, when she goes through, when she achieves her, her desired escape into looking glass land, right? We see that her theories are triumphantly confirmed, right? Um, Everything that could be seen from the old room was quite common and, and uninteresting, but all the rest was as different as possible, just as she had hoped for. Um, and it all fits, right? It all fits with what was... It's not that she now sees that she was mistaking things or anything, right? Everything that was visible, all the old view is still there, including the back of the clock. So there's a clock on the mantelpiece in front of the mirror. So of course, in the mirror, all you can ever see is the back of the clock. Right, you can't see so she knew there was a clock on the mantelpiece in looking glass world, but she didn't know what the front of that clock was and Can I just pause for a second to say that um one of the reasons one of the many reasons I love this book is the the genius of this entire conception, the whole looking glass as window concept. Um, I think that this is a delightful I, my subtitle for this um, slide was Escape, and of course I'm thinking about Tolkien's concept of escape in On Fairy Stories the idea of how you can uh, see refresh your you know you can escape from your normal world I mean it 's like escape and recovery at the same time um, recovery in the sense that now you're looking at your you know your sitting room with your old sitting room with brand new eyes right uh, now that you can see around the edges and see that there are wonders that you never knew right um, but but of course it's also to Alice a form of escape and we'll come back to uh, some of that uh, more in just a moment but um the brilliant notion, and I'm trying to say I'm not trying to say it's unique, I'm not trying to say no one else has ever had this kind of imagination before. Um, but I think it really captures something really important, right? If you imagine a room with a fireplace and a mirror above the fireplace and a clock sitting on the mantel of the fireplace so that in the mirror you can see the back of the clock, um, the kind of shift in perspective that it introduces. Um, to say, to, to, to shift from looking at this, you know, imagining this picture in your head, looking at the mirror and saying, I see the back of that clock that by itself, by the way, is sufficiently, is kind of an interesting thing, right? I mean, the clock has its face out towards the room. You're not supposed to see the back of the clock right? The back of the clock doesn't matter. It's the front of the clock. that It's the face of the clock that matters. It's the whole point of the clock, right, is the face of the clock. And the face of the clock is looking out towards the room. And so the very fact that in because it happens to be sitting in front of a mirror, you can actually see in the mirror the back of the clock is itself a kind of perspective bending thing, right? Where you are getting this clock from both sides. By looking at it, you can look at the front and back of the clock at the same time. And that by itself makes that clock a rather remarkable sort of artifact makes that that moment kind of an interesting moment right but to go beyond that right to take that kind of realization that kind of investment of a simple thing with a kind of wonder right with a, with a with a kind of fantasy right but to then take it a step further and say no 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 you're not seeing the back of that clock I have no idea what the back of that clock looks like. What you're seeing is the back of the other clock in Looking Glass House, right? This is not a mirror. It's a window. And there's another clock in there. And I know what the back of that other clock looks like, but I don't know what its face looks like. Which, again, by extension means she doesn't know what the back of the clock in her own room looks like. But she doesn't much care because it's a boring clock, right? But the clock, which always has its back to her. And again, the point of a clock is to have its face pointed towards you, right? And so this sense of I'm looking into this other room and there's a clock facing that room and I've never been able to see the clock, right? I, I, I have no idea what's on the front of that clock. There's this thing, the back of which I've always seen and I've never seen the front. Um, and the way that that invests, again, this whole new level of um, wonder, right? Uh, onto all this, I just, as I say, I think that the the looking glass, the use, the way that Carol deploys the looking glass uh, in this whole setup here, um, in the whole, as the whole uh, kind of linchpin of the story, at least the beginning of the story, um, I think is absolutely brilliant. Um, But as I say, oh, and of course, so, and when she gets there, what does she see? It is the fulfillment of everything that she wanted, Right. What does the face of the clock look like? Unlike any clock that she has ever seen, it's animated for one thing, right? It grins at her. But the face of the clock is a face. It's got the face of a little old man, and it grins at her. It isn't that the clock has no face. Right, She's never seen the face. It might not have a face for all she knows. She could never prove that it had a face. But when she goes through, she discovers not only does it have a face, it has a face. Right? <laughs> it has a face that can grin. Um, it's a real face. Not just a clock face. And this, I think, automatically, I, 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 notice with the pictures as well. Um, That's, of course, another thing that you can't see in the looking glass are the pictures on the wall next to the fire, right? Because, of course, the mirror is between them on the wall. So, of course, you can't see the pictures in the mirror itself, right? And when she looks at those pictures, she finds they seem to be alive, right? They're animated. Um, I'm not saying J.K. Rowling got that idea from here, but anyway... J.K. Rowling got it much later uh, than Lewis Carroll had it. Um, Everything is... So the pictures are like pictures, except they're real. They move around, right? They're images, but they're real images that move around. The clock has a face, but it's a real face that can grin at you, not just a clock face, right? So it's not just that everything in Looking Glass world is different in some kind of way, Right? Um, I mean, there are lots of ways in which it could be different, right? There are lots of ways in which Alice's imagination might have gone, right? You know, maybe it's all, like, whatever, bright, brightly colored, unusual color, right, that she wasn't expecting. That would have been different, right? Maybe it's all made out of candy or something. That would have been different, right? You know, whatever. Maybe, it's, But that's, um, instead, the way in which it's different is that it's all more real, right? It's all more real. Um, uh, it's, it's like, she's now that she's stepped through, what she has seen only, she's only had access to, as a sort of this flat, two-dimensional sheet of the looking glass, right? That she was stuck behind, now that she's passed through it. It's like all of the things, they're still boring things, just like the old room, but the other things... It's like they have this extra dimension to them. They're more real than the things in the real world, right? So, which world is the real world, I ask you, right? That's a phrase that becomes conspicuous to use about the world that is not looking-glass world, isn't it? Now, um, notice um, in—yeah, my head is thinking about uh, uh, Plato's cave here— You could do some interesting stuff, actually, with Plato's cave and the looking glass. That would actually be a really interesting paper topic. Um, I think you could do some fascinating stuff there. Um, Yeah, yeah. um, Yeah. Um, (laughs) Tenille's illustrations give faces faces to the vase on the mantelpiece and the decoration over the curve of the fire. Yes. um, I know that this is likely an unpopular opinion. I've never been much of a fan of Tenniel's illustrations. Um, I I know to some that's like blasphemy. Um, My defense is that (laughs) Lewis Carroll wasn't either (laughs) and tried to fire him. Um, But... um, uh, Anyway, anyway, um, it's, uh, there are times when I think that his illustrations are very interesting anywhere he's clearly picking up on some really interesting and important things. And then there are some other times when I don't think that he is, but anyway, um, that's a different topic. And I haven't actually discussed those much yet. Um, maybe I will, maybe we'll get to some of the illustrations that I really want to talk about. Um, we'll see if I do, maybe we'll get a chance. To do some of that. But anyway, um, okay. Um, All right. Uh, Oh, yeah. First paragraph. Notice what Alice immediately starts imagining when she gets into the looking glass room. She immediately starts imagining what will happen if people in her house come into the sitting room and look into looking glass room they'll see her right when alice was standing in front of the mirror in her regular room she was apparently unaware that there was any reflection of a girl in the other room right alice was not in there when alice because alice was in the regular room she knew that right so she does not apparently see oh you know a little girl in the other room um but now, right? Um, now she's gone into Looking Glass Room, and she now expects now that there is no Alice in the sitting room to cast a reflection in the mirror. That now they'll see her in Looking Glass Room. Right? Um, oh, what fun it'll be when they see me through the glass in here and can't get at me. Right? Um, she has escaped. We can see in more than one sense. Right? She has escaped. From the normal, boring, you know, it's it's her world that's the sort of two-dimensional world, right? Um, the world in which she was constantly having to apply her prodigious imagination, not just to make it more interesting, right? But even to add, in a sense, new dimensions of life to it, right? Her sister can be one king or queen and she'll be all the rest, right? Um, she was not content just to be one person. She wanted to be them all. Um, I, that's what I mean when I say in more than one dimension, right? And now she is in looking glass world and it is appropriately rich, right? It has extra dimensions, uh, as we can see from the living pictures and the clock face, that's a real face. Um, so it's escape in that sense, right? But it's also escape, more literal escape from the authority and restrictions of that two dimensional world that she came from, right? Um, The people in the other room, which are like her nurse, maybe her parents, um, probably her nurse, uh, and maybe her tutor, right? We saw a lot of education stuff last time in Alice in Wonderland. Uh, Maybe her siblings, right? But also notice as well, um, she's going to be even warmer in this room than she was in the old room, uh, because there will be no one to scold her away from the fire, right? So this increase of liberty that she is going to have here and looking. at Now she is she is her own master within her own world, Alice is, right? Now that she has gone through the looking glass. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Tarlonio, you are right. She doesn't seem to think about the looking glass people coming in to scold her away. Um, remember, she was quite vague about them, right? She She was quite vague about who it was that was holding up a book. I guess she doesn't seem to be even vaguely interested in the idea that there might be people, uh, over here. Right. And indeed she's not going to meet people over here. Properly speaking. Um, just as she was the only, pretty much the only, well, you could say the mad Hatter was a human being, but he was a Hatter. I'm not sure if that counts. Um, no, but, I, again, she was unusual, at the very least, in being a, a human being, right, um, in Alice in Wonderland. Um, and we will see a similar thing uh, with that uh, here in Looking Glass World. Um, but let's see how this continues then. So one of the things that she notices, right, one of the things that she notices is that the chess pieces are all in the fireplace, right? They're all in the ashes. Um And the White Queen is all distressed. Um, One of the pawns is up on the table, and the White Queen is down in the fender, and so she's distressed. Um, uh, "'It is the voice of my child!' the White Queen cried out as she rushed past the king, so violently that she knocked him over among the cinders." my precious lily my imperial kitten and she began scrambling wildly up the side of the fender imperial fiddlestick said the king rubbing his nose which had been hurt by the fall he had a right to be a little annoyed with the queen for he was covered with ashes from head to foot alice was very anxious to be of use and as the poor and as the poor little lily was nearly screaming herself into a fit she hastily picked up the qu- queen, queen the queen so that was a little typo there. And set her on the table by the side of her noisy little daughter. The queen gasped and sat down. The rapid journey through the air had, taken, had quite taken away her breath, and for a minute or two she could do nothing but hug the little lily in silence. As soon as she had recovered her breath a little, she called out to the white king, who was sitting sulkily among the ashes. Mind the volcano! I never realized this in my life before. I'm just now seeing something that it's... I I probably shouldn't confess this because if I didn't confess this, it would look like really clever, like I was obviously setting this up the whole time. But I totally never actually even noticed this. You know what happens? Um, uh, you, You know what happens? The queen and king can't see her right (laughs) sorry I'm laughing at Arthur saying that Hatter's Hatter's gonna hat it's so true Um, uh, they can't see her right well of course they can't see her she never saw herself right um that's that's (laughs) sorry i'm all twitching because i want to see i don't think that was my typo i think it's in my book i think it's in my ebook but i'm not gonna look it up um anyway okay i was just i was just copying and pasting uh from my ebook onto the slide but anyway um okay yeah Alice's absence. When she looks into Looking Glass, into the Looking Glass room, which, where she still is, right? She ignores herself. And the king and queen don't see her at all. Right? They can't even tell that she's there. The queen feels... (laughs) theorizes that she was blown up to the table by, the vol- by a volcano, right? Now, on the one hand, I suppose the fireplace to a chess piece might be hot like a volcano. Um, but, um, goodness... On the one hand, Alice is here attempting to interact with these characters, right? And we see several instances of this, right? So Alice picked him up, that is, the white king who was all covered with ashes. So Alice picked him up very gently and lifted him across more slowly than he had lifted the queen, that she mightn't take his breath away. But before she put him on the table, she thought she might as well dust him a little, So he was covered, he was so covered with ashes. She said afterwards that she had never seen in all her life such a face as the king made, when he found himself held in the air by an invisible hand and being dusted. He was far too much astonished to cry out, but his eyes and his mouth went on getting larger and larger and rounder and rounder, till her hand shook so with laughing that she nearly let him drop upon the floor. Oh, please don't make such faces, my dear, she cried out, quite forgetting that the king couldn't hear her. You make me laugh so that I can hardly hold you, and don't keep your mouth so wide open. All the ashes will get into it. There, now I think you're tidy enough, she added, as she smoothed his hair and set him upon the table near the queen. He can't hear her, and he can't see her, right? Um, So... Let's remember all the elements that are involved here. There are two things. Let's think about similarities and differences between what's going on here in looking glass room and what was going on in the old boring room, right? Um, Similarities and differences. There are obvious differences. She's talking to her chess people, right? There were... She had a chess set in the other room. Remember, she was talking to the kitten about her chess set. What was the primary premise of what was going on in the other room? What was the main focus of action in the other room? The main focus of action was her and her kitten... Right, with Dinah grooming the other one. So there was Dinah and two kittens, Alice holding the one, and Dinah grooming the other. Um. And now she's picking up the chess pieces, right? Um. She's picking up the chess pieces, and notice how she's talking to the White King here. Oh, please don't make such faces, my dear. She's accusing the king, the white king, of making faces while she does what? While she grooms it, right? While she's dusting cleaning him off, he's covered with ashes and she's cleaning him off, just like the white kitten was getting licked off by Dinah in the other room, right? So there's this clear parallel between the chess pieces and the kittens. Her tone of voice by itself makes that perfectly clear, right? Um, The way she's interacting with the chess pieces, the way she's talking with them. Um, And then we have the um, one-way nature of the conversation, except... As has generally been the case so far in Looking Glass Room, um, there's an extra dimension. In the old boring room, we heard Alice's part of the conversation, but only Alice's half. Remember, she kept going back and forth with the kitten. She was having quite, a, uh, uh, quite an enthusiastic two-way conversation with the kitten, but we couldn't hear the other half, right? Um, as far as we could see, the kitten was quite silent during the whole time. And I'm going to go out on a limb and guess probably more or less oblivious to the entire subject matter of Alice's conversation, right? Um, The same is more explicitly true here. Alice is invisible and inaudible to the chess pieces themselves. Um, But there's another dimension. We can hear them interacting with each other right so we get the white queen and the white king and their interactions and their perspective on the whole thing we don't know what the kitten was thinking about his treatment by Alice right before um we had many of her projections about that many of her imaginings about what the kitten was thinking and what the kitten was saying right and all that kind of thing what what the kitten meant by various things um but now we hear the other side of it so we're getting a two-way conversation except neither of them are actually talking to each other right um so she's finished grooming the white kitten i mean the white king remember also of course we got cued for this just before when the white queen calls lily her the pawn her imperial kitten Right? which is just a pet name for her baby, right? but a rather conspicuous one under the circumstances, just in case we weren't remembering right? Uh, to, to make that parallel between the chess pieces and the kittens. Um, well, here we are. The king was saying, I assure you, my dear, I turn cold to the very ends of my whiskers. To which the queen replied, You haven't got any whiskers. The horror of that moment, the king went on. "'I shall never, never forget.' "'You will, though,' the queen said, "'if you don't make a memorandum of it.' "'Alice looked on with great interest "'as the king took an enormous memorandum book "'out of his pocket and began writing. "'A sudden thought struck her, "'and she took hold of the end of the pencil, "'which came some way over his shoulder "'and began writing for him.' The poor king looked puzzled and unhappy, and struggled with the pencil for some time without saying anything. But Alice was too strong for him, and at last he panted out, "'My dear, I really must get a thinner pencil. I can't manage this one a bit. It writes all manner of things that I don't intend.' "'What manner of things?' said the queen, looking over the book, in which Alice had put, "'The white knight is sliding down the poker. He balances very badly.' "'That's not a memorandum of your feelings.' Okay. Um, Now. Lots of things happening here all at once. First, we get the conversation between the king and queen, right? Their perspective of... Notice the disjunction between their experience of this entire situation and Alice's experience of this entire situation, right? Right? Um, Alice was just helping. She wanted to be of use, right? She was helping the queen. The queen was worried because she was separated from her daughter. And so she picked her up and put her next to her daughter, right? What a big help. Um, but that quite took the queen's breath away, right? It was a very different experience for the queen. It was like being blown up by a volcano, the white king gets picked up and she's being cautious about being more gentle and yet, uh, and then in transit, she, he is so covered with ashes and soot that she brushes him off, right? She cleans him for which you'd think he would be suitably grateful, right? Um, and instead we see him his feelings, right? His experience of this I turned cold to the very end of my whiskers. Um, Remember Alice was just talking about how nice and warm she would be in this room. Um, And how this is like a scarring experience that he has had, that he will never forget the horror of that moment um, as he was being carefully cleaned while she spoke to him quite affectionately, just like she spoke to the kitten, right? Um, There's a There's a kind of um there's a kind of a kind of discomfort here, isn't there? Um what happens to Alice in Looking Glass World, and this is one of the first places that we see it, it doesn't always go the way that she would necessarily want it to go. She wants to be of use, right? She's trying to be friendly to the talking chess pieces that she finds there in the fender. Um, oh, and by the way, why are they in the fender? They're in the fender because that—that's where you can't see them in Looking Glass House, right? She—they couldn't be anywhere else because she would have seen them being there, right? Um, so she's imported the. So I presume this means that she's put her chess pieces away. like They're not sitting out visibly in the room. Um, Or at least not all of them are. Maybe there is a pawn, that is, right? And that's why Lily was up on the table. But but the others are down in the fender. Again, the part of the room that can't be seen from Old Boring Room. Right. Um, Anyway, so on the one hand, I talked about the voluntariness of Alice's Im- use of imagination in creating and populating looking glass house, looking glass room. Um, but yet we also see things don't go all the way that she wants them to go. There's this disjunction between her and the chess pieces, which is not necessarily what she would imagine. In fact, it seems to be something like the um, something like a contradiction. Or rather, something like the consequences of something like the consequences of her her own choices, right? Of her own um, her own imaginings. She imagined she couldn't see herself in the mirror, right? And as a consequence, the things in the mirror can't see her, and therefore this puts their interactions on a very different footing. Um, but at the same time. At the same time, they, um, they're acting like the kitten, right? Um, it is like we're seeing Alice. and um, It's like we're seeing Alice interacting with the king like she interacted with the kitten. But again, we didn't see the kitten's perspective. What if the kitten was feeling horror, right, um, at all the things Alice was doing to it? Right. Um, It's a. um, A different kind of imagining. Right. Um, Not just. Not just sort of wish fulfillment. uh, Imagination. But there's another thing. There's another thing that the queen. Brings in. Which. Should remind us. Of Alice in Wonderland. Right. And that is. As I say, there's a disjunction between Alice and the and the chess pieces, right? She's speaking; they can't hear her. They're speaking. Um, she can hear them, but she can't interact with them, right? Though she can physically interact with them, um, and yet there, there's a disjunction between the two of them as well. Um, I love the way the queen turns. The king's statement, the horror of that moment, I shall never, never forget. You will, though, if you don't make a memorandum of it. So a memorandum book, um, you know, which is a good idea, right? To have a memorandum book in your pocket so that if there's something that happens that you want to remember, you can write it down in your memorandum book, right? So you carry a little notebook and pencil in your pocket just in case, right? And it turns out the king does this um, so that he... ...doesn't forget things, you know. Um, it's a little odd when he is saying the whole point that he's making... ...is that the horror that was impressed upon him in that moment... ...is going to be, you know, ir- irrevocable, right? Um, will always be there. And the queen then urges him to write it down, lest he forget it, right? Right? On the one hand, she is being literal. But she's not just being literal. She's not just, like, catching him out. So it's like some of the things that we saw in Alice in Wonderland. But it's not like she's just catching him out on a technicality of his speech. She's almost reversing it, right? That is, he is describing an experience which he would wish to forget but can't. And she responds as if he was describing a thing... That he wants to remember but might not. You see what I mean? Um, it's it's a it's a it's it's a complete reversal um, that the queen performs there, right? And the king seems to accept it completely, right? He does not say to her, "No, no, no, that's not what I meant," right? And this, of course, is set up by the first sort of reversal, right? He says, "I turn cold to the very ends of my whiskers," which inspires the queen, his wife, to point out that you haven't got any whiskers. Right. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what to make of that. Right. Um, he's making a figure of speech. But it's a figure of sp- So he's trying to convey, use a figure of speech to convey how he felt. Right. Explain his experience but he explains his experience by use by use of a like metaphor involving something that is not relevant to him and his personal experience because he doesn't have any whiskers right um which the queen of course immediately points out um yeah yeah um now The other thing which should remind us, I think, even more of Alice in Wonderland is the business with the writing. Um, Remember, she was just looking at what the jurors were writing uh, in their little notebooks, right? And she was kind of making fun of them for that. But here's the thing that I couldn't help but remember. The king is trying to write his own thoughts and feelings in his memorandum book, and Alice takes the end of his pencil and overpowers him and writes something different instead. So that the king in the end says, I, I can't manage this pencil a bit. It writes all manner of things that I don't intend. And then the queen, reading what he wrote, agrees that's not a memorandum of your feelings. Right. Remember that this. Um, remember that this is very much like what we saw with Alice all the time. Remember what happened whenever Alice tried to recite poetry? Right. She tried to recite a poem that she had memorized and it would come out wrong. This was always happening to Alice in Wonderland. Right. Um, that she would try to recite something. Maybe it was a, a, a fact. Right. A historical or geographical fact. Maybe it was... Um, uh, maybe or more frequently and more comically, uh, it was a poem which came out wrong. Right, the words that she actually said were not the words that she intended to say, um, and we see that same kind of, um, the same kind of disjunction, right here, where the king is writing with his pencil, but he can't manage the pencil. The pencil is writing something else against his will. That is not, in fact, what he meant to write down in his memorandum book right um yeah why is the knight unbalanced does it have to do with the asymmetry of the way knights move on the chessboard i suspect so jack rabbit monster um yeah i do i do um interestingly now notice There's both something momentous and totally not momentous that happens right here. Alice has succeeded in communicating with the white king and queen. Do you notice that? They can't hear, hear, hear her. They can't see her. But by manipulating the king's pencil, she can write something that they can read. Right? The queen looks in the book and she can read Alice's writing in the book. So here we go. This is very momentous. This is a way for her to communicate with them. But it's also not momentous at all because she doesn't actually communicate with them at all. Right. She's just, um, uh, making another random observation, which doesn't have anything to do with them. Doesn't seem to be something she's trying to communicate to them. Exactly. I don't think the white knight sliding down the poker matters a very great deal necessarily to the king and queen at that moment. Right. Nor, Alice's observations on the skill with which he balances on said poker right Um, uh, so yes Alice is she's like taking over the king's memorandum book to be her own memorandum book this is what she observes that she wants to write down like the kind of thing she might write down in her own memorandum book perhaps right Um, yeah Yeah, um, there will not be a very great deal of successful communication among people any people in looking glass world Um, that's something that we will see many times over in looking glass world before we're done um then she opens the book and finds that she can't read it, of course, so she holds it up to the, to the looking glass because then they over in Old Boring World will presumably hold up a matching book and she'll be able to read it, right? And so she is able to read it when she holds it up. And she reads the following poem. First, let us go ahead and talk about the title. No, let's talk about the poem title at the end. Um, Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the momraths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son! The jaws that bite, the claws that catch! Beware the jubjub bird, and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took the vorpal sword, and he took his vorpal sword in hand. Long time the manxum foe he sought, so rested he by the tumtum tree, and stood a while in thought. And as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock, with eyes of flame, came whiffling through the tulgey wood, and burbled as it came. One two one two and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker snack he left it dead and with its head he went galumphing back and hast thou slain the jabberwock come to my arms thou beam, my beamish boy o Frabjous day calloo calais he chortled in his joy twas brillig and the slithy tove did gyre and gimble in the wabe all mimsy were the borogoves and the mome raths outgrabe all right. So. Holy cow. Moe Dillon, you're, of course, absolutely right. The king's whiskers must be a reference to the kitten's whiskers. That's the third kitten reference, right? Um, he says, I went cold to the end of my whiskers, like the kitten's whiskers. And sh- the queen says to him, you haven't got any whiskers, right? Um, she's literalizing. So he was making a what? Unconscious metaphor of himself? Like he's confused himself with a kitten? For a moment, is he the kitten or is he not the kitten? Really good catch. That's exactly what the reference to the whiskers is about. Okay. Um, let's let's look at the shape of this. Um, let's do um, let's do the normal approach. What's the sound shape of this poem? It's variable. You could hear that, right? Um, not Although each stanza has a similar kind of shape, that is, we're all in four-line stanzas, right? And the line lengths are basically the same. Uh, the rhythms are not very... Um, uh, they're, they're not the same from one stanza to the next, right? "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toves... Hmm. By the way, the Slithy Toves has been the name of my fantasy football team for many years. Just a little piece of trivia. Um, Okay, Uh, I don't even remember when it was that I first named my fantasy football team the Slithy Toves. Um, But um, anyway, uh, the first line is already odd. Um, Oh, so I'm I'm, I'm almost positive it's slithy, uh, in fact, um, and not slithy. uh, And I believe the primary reason it's it's, the reason it's not slithy or the reason it is slithy. um, uh, We'll come to it later on when we get an exposition of this poem we will of course be very fortunate uh, to receive an expert analysis of this poem later on in the story Um, we shall hazard our own observations at the beginning uh, here despite the fact uh, but we just have to acknowledge that we need to be prepared to submit our observations and conclusions to the expert analyst who shall be uh, discussing this poem later on. However, in that analysis, uh, the word slithy is explained in a way that makes it very clear that the eye is supposed to be long like that. Anyway, um, um, the thing that uh, messes me up about that first line is that we have three unstressed, three apparently unstressed syllables in a row. The second syllable of brilig, I think brilig is clearly with the stress on the first syllable. Um, so brill, so the ig and the um toves, like the sly toves is an iambic phrase, right? Um, you could say that twas is unstressed, twas brilig. Um, you'd have to stress... You'd have to stress and um, in order to make it work. If you did stress and, it's a perfect I- iambic tetrameter line, right? Twas brillig and the slithy toves. Eh, you can do that. Um, it's very unusual. Uh, it was a little bit weird. Um, in any case, did gyre and gimble in the wave, That's uh, um, much more regular iambic. Um did Geyer and Gimble in the wave. Yeah, there's four. All Mimsy were the Bora Goves. All Mimsy were the Bora Goves. And the Moamraths outgrabe. And the Moamraths outgrabe. Three beats. But there were the weird, the first and last lines are very irregular, right? Um. We start with two unstressed syllables and then two stressed syllables. And r- Momraths, you really, you really can't um, de-stress either of those words. It's almost impossible. Um, and the Momraths outgrave with a clear stress on. Um, uh, yeah. Um, oh, how do we know it's gyre? Uh, did gyre and gimbal um, because that's how they say it in the UK, mostly a gyroscope um, uh, and it alliterates with gimbal uh, also, when you read it that way um, yeah, yeah. Um, I will tell you, Arthur, I always read it as gyre as well, being in fact, not from the UK myself. Um, but the first time I heard a British person read the first time I got an audiobook read by a British person, um, I got did and Gimbal in the web and I was like, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Um Yep, yep. Um anyway, uh I believe it's Gyer and Gimbal, but I I don't think it's crucial, but I think it is for the little for the alliteration there in the middle. Um, Yeah. Um, Okay. Um, Look at the shift. Look at the second stanza. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jub-jub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. Hear how more regular that is? We don't get any of those irregularities that we get, especially in lines one and four of the first stanza. Beware the jabberwock, beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. The frumious bandersnatch. Even the frumious bandersnatch is perfect. It like scans perfectly. Um, the frumious bandersnatch. Um, so yes, we see the basic rhythm. Clearly a basic iambic rhythm four beats per line for the first three lines and then three in the fourth line, right? The only one uh, deviation we get is that third line, the jub-jub bird, right? Um, and I love that one. The uh, Not only is jub-jub a really fun word to say, um, you know, it kind of makes you... Uh, um, I don't know, not, it kind of makes you... Sound like a jawa, but anyway, um, it also kind of sounds like a bird call, right? Jub, jub, uh, it, it's there anyway. It's beware the jub, jub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. So we get this beware the jub, jub bird and shun. Okay, we do get eight syllables exactly. Um, so what we what we lose is we basically lose an unstressed syllable there, um. Yeah, yeah. Um Yeah. And yet, yeah, yeah um uh, Violinist, you're quite right that the hard G um is a very dominant sound in that well, I won't say dominant, but it's one of several very, very prominent sounds in that first stanza, right? Brillig, Geyer, gimbal, goves, and grabe, right? Uh, We get five hard Gs there. And so, yeah, I think I agree that that pattern certainly seems to suggest it. It does sound like, you do sound like an Ewok. That's right. That's right. Yes. Um, Yes, you're right. It sounds more like an Ewok. I think that's what I was thinking in my head. The wrong word came out. I'm having that problem a lot today. Um, The irregularity of the first stanza. And now, look, we've, read a lot of Lewis Carroll poetry already, right? Lewis Carroll is marvelous at meter. Um, Lewis Carroll is always in control of his meter. If Lewis Carroll wants to write a perfect meter, he will write a perfect meter, right? If he varies from a perfect meter, it is because he wants to vary from that perfect meter. Um, And the whole feel of that first stanza is supposed to be different. From the second stanza. Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borrow goves, and the mome raths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird, and shun the frumious bandersnatch. Hear the difference? See what he accomplishes by having the irregular rhythms in stanza one. And then the perfectly regular rhythms in stanza two. Hear the increased sort of urgency. How those lines all tumble together. You don't even need the exclamation points, right? You can feel the exclamation points. Beware the jabberwock, my son. The jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um. He took his vorpal sword in hand Long time the manxum foe he sought So rested he by the tum-tum tree And stood a while in thought He took his vorpal sword in hand Long time the manxum foe he sought So rested he by the tum-tum tree And stood a while in thought That one is almost equally regular To the second one Notice how he alters the feel of it, though. It doesn't have the same urgency as stanza two. Um, and that's because, of, so in the f- stanza two, we have the two short sentences, right? One sentence per line. Well, the second one isn't exactly a sentence, it's uh, on a positive, right? Uh, Something like that, right? Um, Or, you know... Well, even the way in which it's a fragment is important, is interesting. Again, conveys that sort of... uh, that kind of urgency, right? Um, He took his vorpal sword in hand. Long time the manxum foe he sought. So rested he by the tumtum tree and stood a while in thought. Um the way the second line um, interrupts the rest of the stanza. Long time the manxum foe he sought. Um, Sort of slows things down, right? Um, We get very hard breaks at the end of those first two lines. Though... The last two lines flow together, just as the last two lines of stanza two flow together. That's interesting. And as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tulgey wood, and burbled as it came. One two, one two, and through and through, the vorble blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. Um yeah. Whenever you're in doubt as to the overall shape, sound shape, like is it iambic or what? Just keep reading, you know. It will tell you. It will tell you you can see it, you can feel it, right? kalu calay, right? Yeah. Um yeah. And this is, a, it's, this is a real thing, because there are lots of places where poets will vary their lines very regularly, right? Like, uh, flip the first foot, for instance. Um, or have an iambic line that, does, that starts with a stressed syllable, which can mess you up, right? Like, come to my arms, my beamish boy. By itself, if you just take that line, come to my arms, my beamish boy, It's not obvious. We start and end with the stress. What's going on in this line, right? Um, You could kind of read that in a couple different ways. Um, He chortled in his joy. Couldn't be clearer there, right? Um, Okay. Let's talk about Rhyme. A B A B? Very simple, right? A B A B? Mostly, right? No. Not until we get to stanza three, anyway. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the manxum foe he sought, so rested he by the tum-tum tree and stood a while in thought. Yes, no alternate rhyme. Instead, that's replaced with internal rhyme in line three. So rested he by the tum-tum tree. Right, so we get the B rhymes on lines two and four, but nothing rhymes with hand in that stanza. Stood, flame, wood came. through snack, head, back, same thing. Left it dead and with its head, right? And then we get the same thing in the next stanza as well. No rhyme for Jabberwock. O oh, Frabjous day, Kalu Calais. He chortled in his joy. And then back to the ABAB. So we have two different stanza forms. So notice what he's then created here with his very simple rhyme scheme. Is he's created two different stanza forms, which then themselves... Create a shape, right? If we call stanza form A the ABAB pairing and stanza form B, well, let's call them one and two, right? Um, let's call them alpha and beta. How about that? If stanza form alpha is the ABAB and stanza form beta is the uh, just the B rhyme with the internal rhyme on line three, right, we get alpha, alpha, beta alpha, beta, beta, alpha. Um, So we get a kind of shape in there. Um, Alpha, alpha, beta, alpha, beta, beta, alpha. Again, right? The repetition of the first one. So there's a kind of of symmetry there, right? Of the first six stanzas, half of them are of the alpha form and half half of them are of the beta form. And they form that two in one, two in one, one in two pattern, right? They're like mirror images of each other, the first three and second three stanzas of the poem. And that seems interesting, right? That seems that seems relevant under the circumstances now, doesn't it? Um... Uh, And again, then we have the repetition, right? Stanza 7, which is just a repetition of stanza 1. Okay. Huh. That's interesting. Now, what's this poem about? What's this poem about? Well, stanza 1, we're establishing... We're setting the mood establishing the context. We're told the time that it was, right? When did this happen? Um, what was going on? Right? Stanza 1 is tricky. Um, there's a bunch of things, are doing a bunch of things, but... Um, but you don't get the sense that there's any action here, right? Um, like, I, I don't get the impression, for instance, we're supposed to be particularly interested in the fact that the slithy, slithy toves are gyring and gimbling in the wave, right? Like they do, right? Um, uh, but, nor is it obvious how those things exactly contextualize the narrative, right? But if we jump to the narrative for a second, we'll come back to the intro because, of course, it's again at the end. Um, the warning to his son I don't know what a jabberwock is, but I, if it has jaws that bite and claws that catch, that I can understand, right? I don't know exactly why I should um, beware the jubjub bird, um, nor exactly what it will do. Um, but I, I can at least understand why I might want to shun the Bandersnatch, because it appears to be Frumius, uh, and you know, there you go so we have a parent urging his son uh, his son, her son don't know if it's a father or mother, but it's some parent, parental figure urging caution on the child but the child, who appears to be a grown child, takes his sword in hand and seeks the foe. So he's supposed to beware the foe, but he's going to seek it instead. Now, I don't think this is necessarily defying uh, the... Um, I don't get the impression that he's, the son is defying the uh, advice of the parent. Um, but rather that the advice of the parent is uh, 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 to urge him to be cautious in the undertaking that he is apparently going to undertake, right? Um, okay. And um, then he's standing in uffish thought under a tum-tum tree. And as he's thinking uffishly, the Jabberwock, which apparently, in addition to Claws that catch and Jaws that bite, has Eyes of Flame um, comes whiffling through the tulgy wood and burbles which can't be good there's not much of a combat there does seem to be a brief combat right one two one two and through and through the vorpal blade went snickersnack so there we go the kid just um, slays the jarowoc and decapitates it and goes galumphing back with its head and hast thou slain the Jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy, O oh, frabjous day! Kalu, kale He chortled in his joy. Um, ah! Father! There we go. The joy is the joy of the parental figure who has here, through pronoun, been identified as f- father, right? Who's overcome with delight about the slaying of the Jabberwock. So... The narrative is quite straightforward, right? Um, There are many details we don't necessarily know. Uh, We have almost no context to this at all, right? Who's the kid? Why is he going to go kill the Jabberwock? Um, What exactly is being accomplished by this? I mean, it seems tolerably unpleasant, the Jabberwock, but... um, uh, And I suppose reasonably impressive to have slain it, though... Um. Uh, though it, in the end it seemed easy enough to do, didn't it? I mean, uh, we don't get a long heroic battle scene of any kind, right? It seems more like an execution of the poor Jabberwock, but whatever. Um, it's apparently a great accomplishment and um, our father figure is delighted uh, to have his son back and cries out so delightfully O oh, Fabius Day! Right. I love that expression. Use it all the time. And then we get the repetition. Twas Brillick, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All Mimsy were the Borogoves, and the Moamraths outgrabe. Um, I still don't know what all those things are or exactly what they're doing, but the repetition presents this sense of gives a sense of permanence to it, right? Or even, potentially, of futility. Um, The poem ends exactly as it begins. The world is unchanged by the momentous event that happens in the middle. It may be, for our parental speaker, for our our paternal speaker, rather, a frabjous day indeed, right? And yet, the slithy toves carry on gyring and gimbling. The Borogovs are still mimsy, and the Momraths are still outgribing, right? Um, nothing has really changed from one end of the poem to the other end of the, por- uh, of the of the poem. Um, and absolutely, Sarah, this poem is indeed the source of both the words tortle and galumph. If there are strange words in this poem that seem familiar to you. It is only because this poem is so famous that it has brought these words into the language. Chortle, I think is the word, which is most, um, likely to look like a, um, common, like can like, you know, to stand out to you as like, be, you know, you wouldn't put it in the same category as you would like offish whiffling, um, Uh, or Borogoves right Um, also galumphing I think very likely Um, but all of those words, chortle and galump as well as all the rest of them are all on the same ground here in this poem Um, uh, yeah yeah Um, yes yes Um, now what's he doing here Remember the context, overall looking glass context, right? She opens the book and she can't read it because, of course, it's a looking glass book. And looking glass books don't operate the same way that books do in the normal world, right? So she has to hold it up to the looking glass and then she can read it in the looking glass, right? Because it flips the letters back around again but of course like everything that she's discovered in looking glass land so far it has a new dimension right it has a dimension beyond the dimensions of old boring room um and here it's language itself right even once she gets the letters flipped around so that she can recognize the letters the words don't work the way that normal english words work um they are like English words, and in a couple of different ways, right? Some of them are like English words in the sense that they sort of look like. So, like, let's take the word frumious, for instance, right? What does that mean? Well, it is quite like an English word, right? It's very similar to the word furious, um, which, in context, I, I, the, if the Bandersnatch were, in fact, furious, that would explain why you would shun it, right? Because it's furious, after all, and might attack, right? Um, but but it's not the same word. Frumious is not the same thing as furious. So you, we might think we know what that... We might suspect we know what it means, right? There are other words... Um, uh, there are other words that we might feel that we understand because of onomatopoeia, right? Um, when we're told the jabberwock came whiffling through the wood, right? Um, I assume that means he's moving really fast, right? Um, that sense of whiff, you know, the the, the onomatopoetic sense of whiffle um, to suggest... Fast motion, possibly, you know, uh, you know, brushing through the, 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 you know, crashing through the branches and leaves on the way through, right? Sort of the, the hiss of his passage, right? Um, burbled. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the burbling there, you get both things, both. It sounds like a word. sounds very like an English word. It's burbled is kind of like bubbled, um, and kind of like murmured. Um, It's neither one of those words, right? Um, And it's also kind of onomatopoetic, right? We can, it sounds, you know, if we're told that it's burbling as it came, it's hard to separate the sound of that word burble from the imagination of what it was doing, right? That it's making some sound which is evoked by the concept of burble. Um, Oh, and by the way, yes, Vorpal Blade is absolutely, I know for people who play D&D, like, uh, or even any number of video games, right, um, that sounds like an extremely common word. It's to say he invented the concept of the Vorpal Sword. The Vorpal Sword is and always has been a reference to uh, Jabberwocky. Um, but um, uh, anyway, okay, so um, uh, so yes. Yeah, so sometimes it's the uh, similarity to an English word, or more than one English word, like burble being kind of like bubble and being kind of like murmur, um, and uh, and sometimes that's the onum the onomatopoeic thing, right? Also, like the ju- the jub jub bird, I says it sounds a little bit onum on onomatopoeic onom- onom- to me, um, and even vorpal, right? Um, he <laughs> couldn't have known this, right? But um, the word vorpal. Sounds um, almost to me like uh, on a of the sound effect people use when they're use when they're faking when they're pretending to use lightsabers, right? Vorp, right? The, uh, it's a vorpal blade, right? Um, uh, we don't know what that means, but um, but it's evocative, right? How he manages. Um, I find this poem altogether remarkable. This is an amazing, amazing poem, um, because he, he conveys things, right? Um, and I agree, Fourth Dauntless, that Carol's phono-aesthetic sense is superb, um, There's a high density of nonsense words, right? People use the phrase nonsense words to talk about Jabberwocky, and I wholly disagree. In fact, that feels to me insulting uh, to call these nonsense words. They are not nonsense words. They're very sensible words. They're not standard English words, right? They're different words. They're new words. But nonsense is exactly what they aren't. That's what he accomplishes. In this poem, is writing a poem that uses invented non words which hit you, which hit your ear and your brain as if they were not nonsense at all. This poem is like an experiment in the conveying of meaning, right? An experiment, like a scientific experiment in the relationship between words and meaning. How do words convey meaning, right? Um, and notice, by the way, I was talking about the Frumius Bandersnatch, and we were talking about the word Frumius, and I never even talked about Bandersnatch. Um, because, again, that's as much a nonsense word as frumious um and no I, again i you know if you grew up playing video games for i'm thinking of there were bandersnatches in uh, I, I don't know how many of you are old enough to have played the old rpg bard's tale back in the uh, late 80s um but i remember there were Bandersnatches, of course in that game uh they were they they were, they were mobs in that game um but um anyway uh, yeah. Oh, man. Door Stroke. You know, Bard's Tale might be one of my favorite video games of all time. Like, just, like, if you, like, uh, you know, account for, in, for like, inflation and everything. Oh, man. What a classic. But anyhow, there were Bandersnatches in that game. And, uh, was there a Vorpal Sword? I don't think it was a Vorpal Sword in that game. But, um, anyway, uh... I used to play it in school. You naughty boy! How did you have a computer you could bring into school? Oh, with oh, in, in, on school computers? Yeah, just bring, bring it on a disk. That's very cunning. Um, I never had the guts. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, yeah. So I, that the idea of a bandersnatch, right? What is it? Who knows? What's it like? Could you describe it? Right? What are its What are its qualities? Um, we've We've got the rhyme to guide us, right? Snatch rhyming with catch associated with claws, right? So it's obviously got clause. I mean, that's like a given, right? Um, but, um, anyway, um, he, now, I still, so, I still think the inner five stanzas of this poem are very different from the first and the last, the identical first and last stanza, right? Um, The first and last stanza are quite mysterious. We don't... We're really left wondering. We don't have anything like the same sense. What does it mean, the momraths outgrabe? There are very few lines in stanzas two through six that I think leave us as puzzled as the line, and the momraths outgrabe. What is a momrath? wrath? Um, what does it mean to outgribe? Right? It all works. Um, it all works, but it doesn't work in the same way as those inner stances, the narrative stances, right? The narrative, the story is successfully conveyed, and you barely even. I'm pretty sure outgrabe is a verb. Pretty sure it's a verb. Pretty sure it's a verb. You could say it's an adjective, like all Mimsy were the Borog... Like the, like the groves were Mimsy and the Momrads were outgrabe, right? Uh, you you could see the syntax suggesting that parallelism. I hear where you're coming from. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's a verb. The, it, the, the shape. Um, the shape is a verb. And, and, and I mean... So, and again, this is the other brilliant thing about it. You can tell, like, from context, right? Even the context of the other words that you don't understand. Um, like, uh, not only um, um, am I sure that outgrabe is the verb, but upon reading it, I was immediately sure that outgribing, uh, that outgribe would be the present tense, right? Um, yeah. We know that slithy is an adjective, obviously, right? I don't know what a tove is, nor do I know what slithy is, but I know that that's an adjective noun couple, right? Um, I don't know how to gimbal or where the wabe is, but that the wabe is a place where the slithy toves are apparently gimbling, right, is clear, right? Couldn't be clearer. But the inner stanzas are even more queer. Um, despite the continued density of these unusual words, right? These new words that he's inventing, um, there are very few places where his meaning seems to be in question, right? Right? I take uffish thought, for instance. Um, to stand in uffish thought. Does that not convey um, hesitancy, uncertainty, right? Um, yeah, I think we've all felt uffish. Uh, both when conf- a, a sort of unknown. Uh, he seems to be thwarted. He can't find the jabberwock, right? And he's trying to figure out long time, the Mangsum foe, he thought, right? Um, and now he's resting, and he doesn't know what to do. And he is hesitating in uffish thought. And then it comes whiffling through the tulgy wood and burbled as it came. Um, there's only one word that is not like a particle or a, you know, like a preposition or a particle... You know, a conjunction, an article. Um, there's the word came twice in those last two lines. Right. Um, so the main verb is a normal English word. So it, the jabberwock is coming. Right. But the rest of it all just leans on the words we don't know. Whiffling, told ye, burbled. Right. And yet perfectly sensible. Right. I have no real doubts about what's going on there any more than I do about my beamish boy or, oh, frabjous day, Kalu Calais. Anybody have any questions about what he means there? Right. About what, what's, what's going on, um, or his chortling. Right. And we all think we know what chortling means because we all use that word now, but we all use that word because we all understand what it means. Right. Um, Yes, it's altogether remarkable. Now, I still would claim, um, I still would claim that the first and last stances are quite different. I'm reasonably sure what kind of word is which. That is, like, slithy toves, I know which is the adjective and which is the noun. All mimsy were the borogoves. Right? With the, uh, you know, we perhaps might have some dispute about line four, but I think line three is quite clear. Right, mimsy, obviously an adjective, right? Modifying borogoves, which are the noun, right? Um, we know this also by parallelism, right? We have the plural nouns of the three creatures that are being discussed here: the toves, the borogoves, and the Momraths. Um, uh, but um, anyway, so we have the overall shape of this stanza, like this stanza. It takes, the meaning of it takes a general shape in my head, but I don't actually know. I can't picture anything, right? I can picture the other, the narrative stanzas I can picture, right? I'm not 100% sure what the Jabberwock looks like exactly, but I, I know the relevant bits, right? The jaws, the claws, the eyes, right? The burbling. Um, I can picture it visually and audibly, right? As it's whiffling and burbling. Um, I can't picture... I don't... If there are some things that might be... I mean, I could make a vague stab at Mimsy where the Bora goes, but I would guess... I'd have to do a, you know, a double-blind experiment to prove this. My hypothesis is... um, Hey, maybe we can do this at MythMood. Maybe we can... Uh, Maybe we can test this hypothesis at Mythbook. But my hypothesis is that there would be far more variation of what... Like, if we were to ask people a question like, um, describe a tove," Or, like, um, what does it mean to be mimsy? Right? Like, if we ask people to explain what they think these words mean in the first and last stanza. Compared to words like um, whiffling. G a uffish, burbled. Um, my suspicion is that there would be less deviation in the meanings of our, our understood meanings from the narrative stanzas than there would be. There'd be more variation in that first and last stanza. I think it's less clear what is being conveyed. Now, what is being conveyed is the overall attitude, right? The sort of atmosphere here, right? And in a sense, I think that the, the mystery, like, not knowing what on earth a Tove or a Borogov or a Momrath is, is part of the sort of experience, right? It was, twas Brilig. Okay, I don't know what Brilig is either, but it was, it was, um, a thing. A time? I think a framework in some sense, like it was, okay? And... Creatures are doing things, creatures, but they're creatures I don't know, creatures I can't picture, doing things I can't imagine. I certainly I might have a, um, some kind of an idea what gimballing is, if only because of the connection with Geyer. But um, but I really don't know what outgribing would look like at all. Nor do I really know what a mom momrath is, and I think that we all might have different associations with that, right? Um, but again, that seems to me an important part of the effect, which is also matched by his metrical shifts as well. Think about the increased irregularity, right? How much more irregular the rhythm of those That first and seventh stanza is compared to the rhythm of the rest of the stanzas, right? We're not being carried along in a narrative. We're in this contemplative, sort of mysterious frame. Twas Brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the Borogoves and the Moamraths outgrabe. And the repetition of the same thing at beginning and end makes it sound more mysterious, more formulaic right? Like saying it the same things the second time seems to invest it with this more momentous meaning. I can never stop doing what I just did, which is pausing in that last line as if for mysterious emphasis all mimsy were the borogoves and the Momraths outgrabe right? To lay this emphasis on the outgribing of the Momraths as if you know what it means, right? Because you don't know what it means, but it sounds important. Right? It sounds significant. Anyway, the way that that all kind of uh, comes together, um, I think is, uh, um, I think is really fun. Um, let's glance briefly at Alice's response. It seems very pretty, she said when she had finished it, but it's rather hard to understand. You see, she didn't like to confess, even to herself, that she couldn't make it out at all. Somehow it seems to fill my head with ideas, only I don't exactly know what they are. However, somebody killed something. That's clear at any rate. Okay, so she's... uh, She's... latching on to the one concept which was very explicit, right? Um, I think her expression there somehow it seems to fill my head with ideas, only I don't know eg- exactly know what they are, is perfect. It is so perfect, right? That is exactly what Lewis Carroll succeeds in accomplishing in that poem, right? Um, and this, I think, is what his experiment in words comes down to, right? What is the link between words and understanding? Where is the gap between the ideas that you are conveying, right? When you speak to someone, when you recite something to someone, you're trying to put ideas in their heads, right? Can you do that without the words or without telepathy, right? Right. Without language, but not entirely without language, right? If we didn't know English, we wouldn't be able to make the same sense of it. It's not like reading a poem in a language you don't know at all. Right? It relies upon your understanding of English. It even relies upon your, your the cer- certain associations that you will have with particular English words or particular sounds in an English word context. Right? Um, so it's not independent of language at all, and yet... Since we don't know the words, again, it's exactly like Alice says, it fills your head with ideas. Ideas are conveyed into your head, but you can't exactly say what they are. You can't explain exactly what an—what offish thought is, right? Nor precisely what a frumious bandersnatch is like, compared to an unfrumious bandersnatch. I mean, like, how do you know when a bandersnatch is really getting frumious, Right, um, you can't explain it when you try to turn it into regular words; it fails. Right, um, but notice the difference that he's introducing here: the difference between the failure to f- to put the ideas in your head versus your failure to identify those ideas, to know what the ideas are. Right. We cling to words to give shape, to give meaning to ideas, to identify ideas, right? We attach words to ideas so that we can pin these things down and say exactly what it is. But again, this is why this is like a kind of experiment, right? There seems to exist this other level on which ideas can be conveyed, right? On which... Our own imaginations are acted upon in such a way that we don't, um, you know, are they're acted on in such a way that we we don't need the words actually. So even though we can't pin it down, even though we don't know what the ideas are, they're still they're still there. This is a work of art that has succeeded despite the fact that you can't <laughs> you can't explain it, right? You can't say, you can't summarize it, right? Um. Yeah, Alice is not a huge fan, right? It seems very pretty, she says. She likes how it sounds, but, but it's rather hard to understand. Very true. Very true. All right, it is getting late, um, and uh, I, I, yeah, oh my goodness. I don't think I know a single poem in the English language that I would be less that would be harder to translate into another language than this poem yeah Um, yeah I don't even know how you would begin to go about that I really don't Um, that's like an extra whole level of a translation challenge though there's a part of me that wants to say, maybe in another sense, this poem might actually be easier to translate than other po- than other poems would be to translate, because there's a kind of freedom. Since you're not as normally, you're not like, well, there are these English words, and there are the equivalents for those English words in the other language. But if we use the these exact equivalents, we, you know, all of these choices we have to make, and it gets complicated very quickly. Um, but there isn't any equivalent, right? You can't translate Uffish into German, right? Or maybe you don't need to. Or maybe you would do it in a different way if you're a native German speaker. I think to do it successfully, you would need to have the same kind of effect, right? For a German Reader, if you're translating it to German, for a German reader, for it to feel like German, right? Even though it's not, um, even though it's not German. Anyway, um, or Japanese, JJ, I would be very interested. But um, anyhow, um, yeah, so okay, Jack Rabbit was just quoting the German translation. My problem is, Jack Rabbit. I don't know enough about German even to know if those words are sensible German words. I hope they're not. Um, if those, if every word in there is a normal German word, then uh, I would be disappointed. Uh, in Waben, I'm not sure. I, I really love In Waben or even Toven. Und aller Mimsig. Burgoven, the Momenfrath, My German pronunciation is horrible. As I say, I don't know German. Uh, Waben, Waben, of course. Yeah, Waben. Um, as I said, see, I don't know German. But, um, yeah, they seem to just be almost transliterating the sounds into German. I don't think they work. I mean, does Mimsy, uh work in German like Mimsi does? I mean, it is so clear that, like, this is an adjective and it sounds like several other English adjectives, right, that we could, um, you know, connect it to. It would need to have that kind of force in the German in order for it to really be translating. And this surely, surely... Um, I mean, whenever... This is the reason why poetry is almost impossible to translate, because you always have to choose between... Do I, do I choose the words, like the German words, which are closest in meaning to the English words, in order to convey as accurately as possible what is being said? Or do I try to recreate the feel and the mood and the effect of the English poem? Which would almost certainly mean using quite different... German words and therefore moving away. So you're either moving away from the, you know, normally, right? You're either moving away from the actual meaning. And so you're quite, you're changing the actual, you know, words and context, or you're totally changing the feel, right? The feel and the the sort of the sense and the, um, the, the imagery and stuff. Um, that's why poetry is so difficult, I mean really impossible to translate from one language to another. Um, but I would say in this poem um, uh, if you if you're just trying to preserve the words like vaben, or vaben, I don't know if it's vaben or Waben um, and Mimsich um, and Ausgraben. Maybe Ausgraben. Mohammed Rath. Again, I think it's... um, I think it's... I think it's missing the point. It's preserving the words. It's giving the... Again, this is kind of transliterating the sounds into German. But I think they're going to be more nonsensical in German. I think you're going to lose the sense that they have. I don't know. I, can say, I don't know enough German to know, um, but it would be. I stand by my statement that this would be an, I think, an unusually difficult poem to translate. Well, um, the thing I think that might make it a, a little bit easier in one sense is that, again, you don't when you're choosing between the feel and the words, well, there's less reason to stick by the words. Who cares? <laughs> words aren't what's important, right? It's about the ideas, even if you don't know exactly what they are. Um, but, um, okay. Anyway, um, I'm going to actually say goodbye now. (laughs) Thanks everybody. Um, I probably, probably two weeks, either two or three weeks. We'll be back again. Um, I'm trying to keep my head above water these days. Um, I love being able to come back and and hang out with you guys again and talk about this. This is uh, really wonderful. Um, Two or or three weeks. Not sure which. But uh, we'll try to keep you posted. Follow Signum University's uh, social media and we'll try to keep you posted there. Anyway, thanks everybody. Good night now.